you want to turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 9, we are finishing up our sermon series in the book of Amos this morning. And we're going to be looking at Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Let's take a moment to pray together while you turn there. Father, we, we ask for your help as we open the scriptures. Would you illumine our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that we might receive the truth of your word with tender hearts, with broken hearts. And we pray for your work of restoration to be done in seed form here this morning as we see the the sort of macro level of your restoring work declared in this passage. And we pray that you would dazzle us, that you would take our breath away by the, the beautiful plans that you have for your people and for the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd be willing to bet that you are familiar with uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. You guys know Chip and Joanna Gaines. They are the, uh, the power couple of the Magnolia Network, and uh, you'll find their home decor at Target in the section right across from the, the grocery section in the back there. And um, perhaps what they're best known for, at least initially, was their show Fixer Upper. And uh, in Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna will take a couple looking to buy a home in the Waco, Texas area, most likely. Um, and uh, the husband's name is usually something like Tanner um, or something. And then the wife's name is usually something like Taylor or Cherith or something. And uh, so Chip and Joanna will take Tanner and Cherith um, to look at three different houses that need some love and uh, that are well below their price range with the aim of kind of fixing up this house and decorating it to the nines and Tanner and Cherith kind of pick which house they want and then Chip Joanna, uh, they get to work. And I mean, they, they really get to work. It's amazing if you watch the show. They take off the, the, the wood siding outside. They, they take, up, take all the wood paneling and plaster off the walls. They tear up the floors down to the subfloor. Chip is just this wild man. He's tearing out kitchen cabinets. He just, Chip destroys this place. I mean, he really takes it down to the studs. And um, that's when some of their best work really comes in, Chip and, and Joanna. They, 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 they get to work there remodeling and restoring. They remove uh, walls and add others. They put in new kitchen cabinets and new flooring. They, they put shiplap on everything. I mean, they're, they're like uh, Oprah, they're just like with handing out shiplap. Every wall has shiplap. It's crazy. And uh, they go antiquing, and they get all of this awesome uh, furniture and decor, and they make a, a kitchen table out of reclaimed barn wood, and they finish the house, they restore it, they renew it completely, and it's beautiful. And then comes the big reveal. And so they set up a huge picture of the, the home in its old form right in front of the house, and they bring Tanner and Cherith uh, to look at the, the place, and they put the old, the old house, the picture of the old house, and then they split it in two. And I mean, their reactions, the new house is just amazing. The reactions are, are, they're just so happy. It takes their breath away. Tanner is like air pumping, you know, fist pumping the air. Yeah! And, uh, you know, 
uh, Cherdith is kind of doing this thing with her eyes, and it's just very, it's a very beautiful moment. They're so excited, they're so happy, they're so joyful because they get to live in this beautiful place with the people they love most, their family. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful moment. Well, that's something of a picture of our text this morning. We have spent the last 13 weeks looking at the prophecy of Amos. And again and again and again, we've heard him pronounce judgment and wrath upon Israel for their sins of social injustice and immorality and idolatry. And last week, we saw the sort of final pronouncement of judgment in Amos. Destruction is coming. And the Lord says he's going to destroy the sinful kingdom. But then we see, he, he said he's not going to utterly destroy it. He's going to, to take it down to the studs, so to speak, like, like Chip did. But here in, in verses 11 to 15, we find that he's going to do that for a particular reason. We find that he's going to do that so that he might rebuild and restore the kingdom to be something better than we can even imagine. And we find here in verses 11 to 15, the Lord's description of the restored kingdom. And it's dazzling. It, it, it ought to bring the kind of reaction that Tanner and Cherith had. It ought to take our breath away. It ought to bring utter joy and, and air fist pumping and, and tears and, and laughter because we get to live there with those we love most, God and his people, forever and ever. And so the big idea that we find here is that a restored people in place, a restored people, a restored place, are coming in and through Jesus Christ. And we see that in, 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 in verses 11 to 12, a, a people restored by Jesus Christ. And then in verses 13 to 15, a place restored by Jesus Christ. If you'd like to stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy. Let's listen to be dazzled to have our breath taken away at the beautiful future God has planned for his people. And that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper And the shredder of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Now, to begin with, we need to go back to the beginning. Um, and, and I don't just mean the beginning of Amos, I mean the beginning, beginning. Uh, in Genesis 1, we find the universe's origin story, the earth's origin story, humanity's origin story. In Genesis 1, God created everything that is. And then in Genesis 1 and 2, we find the Lord create a particular place in the earth called the Garden of Eden. And in this garden, this, this garden paradise, there's plenty of food and there's fellowship with God and there's perfect peace and harmony. There's, in a word, shalom. 
And then the Lord creates humanity, Adam and Eve, for existence within this garden, God's people in God's place. But then also, along with this blessing comes a responsibility in this mission to extend the reality of this garden throughout the rest of the earth. Okay, so they were to gardenize, to Edenize the rest of the earth. The rest of the earth was chaotic, it was unformed, it was uncultivated, and Adam and Eve were to multiply and fill the earth with their children so that humanity can cultivate and make the rest of the earth like the garden paradise that they were in, wherein there's fruitfulness and abundance and perfect fellowship with God and one another, so that the entire earth would be a place, God's place, filled with God's people. And now they failed. You know the story, Genesis 3, they rebelled against God, they, they sinned against God, and so instead of gardenizing the earth, they were exiled from the garden paradise that God had created for them, and the entirety of the earth and all of humanity was put under a curse. And now, instead of fellowship with God and one another, there's enmity. Now, instead of abundance in the created order, there's scarcity and difficulty and adversity and frustration. But God still intended to achieve his aim and goal with the created order. And so as he's sending Adam and Eve into exile from the garden, he makes a promise. Genesis 3.15, the Lord promises to send a deliverer. Out of all the, the children that Adam and Eve have that fill the earth, one of their descendants is going to rescue humanity in the entirety of the created order. But the problem is that Adam and Eve, their children, they continue to become more and more depraved, more and more rebellious, and so the Lord decides to judge and destroy the earth and to start over with some of Adam and Eve's children, Noah and his family. And from Noah's descendants, we find and meet a man named Abraham. Now, Abraham is not a great guy, but God makes some great promises to him. And so the Lord calls Abraham to leave his land and country, to set out on this mission. The Lord promises to Abraham that God is going to bless Abraham with a people and a place. A, a, a people, this great family, which had grown to this great nation, and a place, a land on which they're going to dwell. And this people were supposed to be like the original humanity, wherein there's fellowship with God and one another. And this place was supposed to be like the garden, a land full of abundance and fruitfulness, a land flowing with milk and honey. And there, God's people were to have fellowship with God and one another again. And he promises, all of this in Genesis 12, he promises to bless the nations, all the nations, all the families of the earth, through Abraham and this people in this place. And so to make a long story short, the Lord continues to multiply Abraham's family, just as he promised, and they multiply, and they multiply, and they multiply, just having tons of kids, and then they grow up into this huge nation. The promised people that the Lord gave Abraham comes to pass, but they're not in the land. They're in Egypt. They're enslaved. They're oppressed, and so the Lord raises up this guy named Moses, and Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and he leads them through the desert for, for 40 years, and he leads them finally, eventually, into the promised land, this place of abundance and plenty, this place where they were going to have fellowship with God and one another, this garden-like paradise, God's people and God's place. However, like our first parents, like Adam and Eve, this new people, Israel, they fail, they sin, they rebel. And this is what we've been seeing throughout Amos, isn't it? 
The people sin and they rebel against God. And so God declares a word of judgment and wrath. He declares that he's going to send them into exile just like he sent Adam and Eve into exile all those years ago from their garden paradise. But before he does that, he makes another promise. And this promise is found in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord makes a promise to a particular king named David. And this David figure was a descendant of Abraham and obviously Noah and also Adam and Eve. And the Lord makes this promise to Abraham. He says that, just like he did to to Abraham all those years ago, he said that David is gonna have a member of his household, a descendant, who will one day sit on the throne and rule over the entire earth. And in his kingdom, God's people will dwell secure forever in God's place. God's people in God's place, safe, secure, forever. And this isn't like a, like a campaign slogan, which is later subject to review or in need of, of human cooperation. It, you know, let the, let the hearer understand. This is an unconditional promise of the king of kings. And so while God is about to destroy the sinful kingdom, just like he did in the days of, days of Noah, we've seen this over and over in Amos, God's about to destroy the sinful kingdom. He's about to send his people into exile, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden all those years ago, but he does so while reminding them of this promise that he made to Abraham and to David. He reminds them that he's still going to maintain his purposes. He's still going to keep his promises of a people in a place. And so in verses 11 and 12, we see a people restored by Jesus Christ. The Lord says in verse 11, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, who's he talking about there? Remember his promise to David, that David, a member of David's household, one of his descendants will sit upon the throne and rule over God's people in God's place forever and ever. Now, part of the problem here is that The kingdom had split in two with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Judah had kept the Davidic line of kings, while Israel had put kings in place that were not at all related to David. But even in Judah, if if you were to look at at the, the line of kings in Judah, the reign of David's descendants was so pathetic and so corrupted that the house of David couldn't even be called a house anymore. Here the Lord calls it a booth, a tent. It becomes so small and decrepit. And yet here the Lord promises to revive it, to restore the house of David, to raise it up again. And now we know the one in whom this promise has been delivered and fulfilled. Jesus Christ is the promised son of David in 2 Samuel 7. Luke 1.32, this Jesus will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's the one who will come and restore God's broken and sinful people and he's done it. He's, he's come to be born of the Virgin Mary. He came to live the perfect life that we ought to have lived. He died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die. And in so doing, he redeemed his people by his own blood. He purchased our life. And then he rose from the dead on the third day to inaugurate this new creation reality. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven to be seated on the throne of heaven and earth, on David's throne forevermore. All authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the descendant of David who will rule forevermore. That's Jesus Christ. But then remember, this promise was not just for Abraham's family and the nation of Israel over which David reigned. This promise was for every nation of the earth. He promised Abraham, in you all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Lord promised to bless Abraham and through him to bless every nation. And so when the Lord raises up the booth of David, it won't just be a people, the people of Israel and Judah restored by him. He won't just bring the kingdom back together and restore this people. Amos goes on to say that the Lord will raise up the booth of David and that by him they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. You see, this promise of restoration extends to Israel's enemies, Edom, some of their, their worst enemies, and not just Edom, but to all the nations who are called by the Lord's name, God's new people, And this restored people will not be limited to one particular ethnicity. God's people will grow and multiply and fill the earth, penetrating every nation and every people of the earth. This is the fulfillment of the vision of Genesis 1 and 2. With this Edenized earth, this people filling the earth, this is the fulfillment of the the promises of Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7. That's what we find here. And in fact, This very text here in Amos 9 comes up in the New Testament in Acts 15. In Acts 15, there's a council of pastors who who gather together in Jerusalem to determine what they should do about all these non-Israelites, all these Gentiles who are joining the church. They're just not quite sure what to do about it. But James, who's Jesus' brother, he gets up and he quotes Amos 9, 11 and 12, and he says that this text has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and that in him the Lord is restoring the tent of David and is now drawing people from all nations of the earth to himself in and through Jesus Christ. This restoration of God's people means the inclusion of all peoples regardless of race or ethnicity or citizenship in the kingdom and people of God. God is forming and restoring a people for himself, a new humanity who will multiply and fill the earth just like he envisioned in the garden. Now, what does this have to do with us? This has everything to do with us. Realize it's probably the only, it's not probably, it's the only reason you're sitting here this morning. Christian. It's because the Lord has fulfilled this promise. You and I, we're not natural born citizens in the kingdom of God. We are those nations, those Gentiles, those strangers and aliens, ignorant of the promises and covenants of God, but who have now been called by God's name into his new and restored people. But with this gift also comes responsibilities, just like Adam and Eve and Abraham And all God's people in in times past who are given God's gifts, we're also given responsibilities with those gifts. And and there are two that we see here, at least. First, there's the mission's responsibility. The mission's responsibility. The good news of the restoration in Jesus Christ is a message meant for all the nations and peoples of the earth. That's the vision. Matthew 28, 18, the Lord Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. All nations. All nations. And just so you know, that that word 
nations, the word translated as nations there might be, you could also translate that word as, as people groups or ethnic groups. The word, the word in the original language is literally the word ethne, from which we get the word ethnicity. So don't just think of a, of a nation as a, as a place with borders and governments and all of that. A people group may or may not have those things. For example, there are over 2,000 people groups in the nation of India. And so think more in terms of, of ethnic groups or people groups. And as of now, according to the, to the Joshua Project, there are approximately 17,442 people groups in the earth, and 7,413 of them have yet to be reached with the truth of the gospel. That's 7,413 unreached people groups, some of whom right now are not just unreached people groups, but unengaged people groups, meaning that they have no one who's currently trying to reach them with the truth of the gospel, no one intending to reach them with the good news of the reign of Jesus Christ, no one seeking to plant churches and baptize and teach there. Those people make up 3.23 million people. 41.6% of the world's population who have yet to hear or believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, that's our responsibility along with every other local church in the universe. And that's why as a church, we we give to missions, we give to church planting and all of that. But but the elders and I, we've been talking recently and we think that this is an area of needed growth in our church. That's why we're actually next week going to start a a three-week sermon series on on global missions, a a sermon series exploring Psalm 67. And my prayer is that our church would grow as a sending church, a church that sends individuals and households and teams to the nations who have yet to hear to declare the rule and reign of Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. My prayer is that in the next few years, three to five individuals or households would begin to sense a call and reorganize their lives to be sent to the nations to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that our church would continue to grow in prayerful and financial support of global missions efforts. This is our responsibility. It's ours. We own it. As John Piper once said, go, send, or disobey. Go, send, or disobey. We have this sacred calling and obligation to go and to send. We have a missions responsibility. But then also second is what we might call the reconciliation responsibility. You see, we're sent out to bring in. We scatter as a people to gather people into God's church. All the nations and peoples of the earth are called into this new, restored, reconciled, singular community called the church. Into this new community wherein the Apostle Paul says, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Or perhaps what, what primarily used to define us was tribal or national or ethnic affiliations. When you are transferred into the kingdom of God, what becomes primarily true of you is that you're a citizen of, the God, of God's kingdom and a member of his household called the church. This is why the great second century Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, said of the church, he said, we used to hate and destroy each other and refused to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. 
But now predominantly white churches and, and white Christians in the United States have, have largely not been faithful to this responsibility. A couple of years ago when our family went on vacation, uh, we, we stopped in Philadelphia for a few days during the 4th of July, which was a, so much fun. But one of the things I, I had to make sure we, we did was stop by Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And uh, this was one of the first black churches in the United States. It was pastored by uh, Bishop Richard, Richard Allen. And if you look at the history of this church, you'll learn that, that the only reason this church was started was because the minister and members of St. George's Methodist Church down the street refused to integrate black Christians into the life of their church. They practiced segregation and maintained segregation in their church. And I, I wish I could say that this was an abnormal occurrence, but if you look into the history Across the United States, for the majority of our nation's history, predominantly white churches and Christians refused to integrate black Christians into churches and even at times advocated for the subjugation and oppression of their black brothers and sisters. And that history still affects us to this day. That's why MLK once said that, the, that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. It still affects us to this day because we've never really dealt with this. Guys, it's not supposed to be this way. And I, and I recognize that the, the history of racism and segregation in the United States has deep roots, and because of that, there's no real one simple solution for this thing. But it begins with this, recognizing that reconciliation is a responsibility of ours as the people of God. We're not called to be divided along racial or ethnic lines or any other lines, for that matter, save the ones that the gospel of Jesus Christ make. We're called to unity amidst diversity since the people of God are a people of every nation of the earth called into oneness in Christ. And so it's worth asking, does, does the, do the contacts in our phone reflect that reality? Do, 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 do the people we invite around our dinner table reflect that reality? Does, does the membership of our church reflect that reality? We have the reconciliation responsibility. God is restoring a people for himself from every nation and people of the earth and we have been given as a free gift membership in that people, God's new family. But we also have been given responsibilities, responsibilities of missions and reconciliation as members of that restored people. But then we also see that the restored people of God is really only the beginning here. Because that promised restoration not only permeates nations and peoples, it's also meant to permeate the entirety of the created order. And we find that in verses 13 to 15. Look with me next. At a place restored by Jesus Christ. I'll pick it back up in verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. You see, earlier in Amos, he spoke of drought and famine. He's spoken of being uprooted and exiled from their land. But here he says that a complete Reversal of the curse 
will come, that the curse will be lifted, that restoration is coming, and Israel will dwell secure and never be uprooted again. Instead of a curse, they will enjoy God's abundant blessings forevermore. And he describes it. He says that the land will yield such an abundant fruitfulness that those who go out to plant new crops will find the harvesters of the previous crop still in the field because they haven't even collected the full harvest yet because it's so incredibly large. He says that they will be blessed with such an abundance that wine is going to flood and cascade down the hills. They're going to be up to their eyeballs in wine. All of God's people's fortunes will be restored, he says, and they will dwell secure in the land forever. But the best part of it all, he says here, is the last five words, says the Lord your God. God will be their God, and they will be his people. They will possess land and security and abundance and all, but above all, they will possess their God, their Redeemer, their Restorer. And I hope you can see this here. That the promise here is not just that Israel will possess a a particular plot of land in in the Middle East that they once inhabited. There are some Christians who who read this text in that way, and I guess it's fine. But, But the promise here is much bigger than that. Remember verses 11 and 12. We're talking about a global reality of the reign of Jesus Christ, all nations. All nations. So read it in context. The promise here is that of a completely restored earth, just like the purpose of the Lord found in Genesis 1 and 2, that God's people would multiply and fill the earth and gardenize the entire earth, making the entire earth like the Garden of Eden, a place of abundance and peace, a place of unbroken fellowship with God and one another. You see here, that's what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish. He's going to accomplish it when he returns. He's, he's already started this mission in his life, death, and resurrection, when he returns, he's going to finish it. He's going to Edenize the entire earth. But one day, he's going to return and finish this project for good so that we will dwell in this place of abundance and shalom and pleasure, in this place of perfect fellowship with God and one another forevermore. And notice, there's no possibility of exile or reverse like there was with Adam and Eve in the garden Or with Israel in the promised land, this restoration will be irreversible. Verse 15, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. The curse of Genesis 3 will be forever lifted. And you, God's people, will live in abundance and security both spiritually and materially forevermore. Yes, you might say that the, the thing the prosperity gospel preachers get wrong is not necessarily that the Lord wants you to prosper materially and spiritually. They get the timing wrong. The timing for our prospering is, is not now. They think it's supposed to happen right now. It's not supposed to happen right now. It's not supposed to happen until Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, he will cleanse the earth of all that ails it. And he will make all things new so that there's no more scarcity No more difficulty, no more affliction, no more hardship or poverty or frustration or tears or sickness or injury or death anymore. You and all God's people will live with perfect health and happiness forever and ever. But you you see, you have to wait for it. This is our inheritance. You have to wait for an inheritance. Our Father is loaded and he's going to share everything he has with his children But like all inheritances, you have to wait for it. And I want you to see how that changes everything for us as we live right now in this world. 
That means that you can live sacrificially now for the sake of God's kingdom because your inheritance awaits you in the age to come. When we're, when we're talking about our responsibility of reconciliation and missions a few moments ago, you might have been thinking, I can't do that. I can't give myself to missions. I can't give to missions. I can't go. I can't do that. I have too much to lose. I, I have things planned for my life here. I have a job. I have, I have money here. I have a future here. I have a life here, a home here, a family here, and more. And Jesus said in, in, in Matthew 19, 29, that everyone who's left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We will inherit this vision here in Amos 9, 13 to 15. You see, you can give up everything that you have planned for the life that Jesus Christ will give you. You can sell everything you have and go to a remote, unreached people group and live your life giving yourself to them a life of, of, of less than plenty, a life of obscurity. You can give your life to serving an under-resourced neighborhood. You can give your money for the sake of missions and ministry. You can do things that are hard and sacrificial for Jesus Christ. You can let go of all of it for the sake of God's kingdom. As we so often sing, that goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. And here's the kicker, his kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. And you see, that kind of living, that kind of sacrificial living only makes sense in a world where this gospel is true. There's a great philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, once said, we can't answer the question, what ought I do, until we answer the question of what story am I a part? If the gospel's not true, live it up. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is, live it up now. But if we're going to live forever in God's new world in prosperity and shalom, we're not missing, there's no reason for FOMO. We're not missing out on anything now. We can sacrifice now. We can disinherit ourselves now. We can let goods and kindred and this mortal life go. We can't answer the question, what ought I do, unless we first answer the question of what story am I a part? And so I ask you this morning, of what story are you a part? Are you living a life that says this present world is all there is? If so, I want to invite you into something better. I want to invite you into a life of adventure and risk and sacrifice for something greater because the life which we will inherit of eternal reward in the age and world to come, a life of abundance and peace and shalom, a life of security, a life of feasting and wine and deep friendship with God and one another and nothing but the best days, day after day after day after day. And if you're here this morning, you're wondering, how do I get in on this? How do I get in on this story, a story as good as that? I'll tell you, I, you know, I, I love what this, this pastor, Ray Ortland says he's known for his, his kind of mantra, three things, I'm a total idiot, my future is incredibly bright, anybody can get in on this. I'm a total idiot, I've made a mess of my life, but my future is incredibly bright and anybody can get in on this. 
Anybody can get in on this. All you have to do is recognize your need. All you have to do is come to the Christ, the son of David, with the broken pieces of your life and give yourself to him completely. And because of what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection, the healing and restoration of your life that you so desire, he will give you. I want you to see that as we, as we close the book of Amos this morning. Amos has been declaring a message of judgment and wrath to humble God's people before him so that they might come to him in the state of humility and repentance and dependence upon his grace. And Francis Schaeffer once said that if he only had an hour to share the gospel with someone, he'd take the first 15 minutes trying to convince them that God is angry with them over their sin, and then he'd take the last 10 minutes and he'd share the truth of the gospel with them. That's what Amos has done. He spent eight and a half chapters declaring this message that God is angry with us over our sin, angry over our social injustice, angry over our wickedness, that we deserve his judgment and wrath and fury. But in this last half of chapter nine, we see the gospel. Why? Because the Lord won't heal a hard heart. He only heals broken hearts. He only lifts up the lowly. He only restores the broken and destroyed. And so if you're broken and humbled before him, if you've been taken down to the studs, so to speak, That's the kind of person that the Lord heals and restores. You're invited to come and receive his gift of eternal life freely because Christ purchased it for you. And not only that, but he'll not only restore your life, he'll bring you into his restored people, your new family, the church. And one day you'll get to live with your new family in God's place, a renewed and restored earth forever and ever and ever, and it'll be nothing but the best days day after day after day after day. But as a church, we must also remember that there's a responsibility, there are responsibilities that come with that. Responsibilities that came to Adam and Eve and to Abraham and to David and to Israel. There's a responsibility that comes to us as God's people as well. We have a responsibility of missions, the responsibility of reconciliation, but no matter what the cost of our responsibilities, it will be entirely worth it because we, of what we have to look forward to in the world and age to come, a restored life, with restored people in a restored world. Friends, all of this is coming in Jesus Christ and it's going to take our breath away. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this time together. We give you thanks that you have sent the, the Son of God and Son of David, David's Son and David's Lord, to redeem us and to, to restore our broken and shattered lives to restore this broken and shattered people and to eventually come and restore this broken and shattered world. We pray that you would help us to get in on this story, to bet the blue chips on the story, to go all in on this story with its gifts and responsibilities and all, to take these responsibilities as our own and to be involved with what you're doing in the earth in terms of missions and reconciliation. Lord, and and help us to always keep the prize in mind so that we know whatever the cost is now, it's completely worth it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.